Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Big Tent, where political merchants come to trade. Hosted by Circus Bazaar magazine and produced by Circus Bazaar Productions, where truth is stranger than fiction. Good evening, my fellow citizens. Ich bin ein Violiner. Join the progressive body. Obviously. <laughs> Being a woman in, in public life. An iron curtain has descended across the country. Hi there, people. Welcome to episode five of Circus Bazaar Magazine's The Big Tent Podcast by Circus Bazaar Productions. This is our slightly overdue first podcast of 2019. It's our intention to produce at least eight podcasts this year, so more should be coming very soon. We're now available on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. Further, if you're interested in our historically and politically focused magazine, you can visit circusbazaar.com. And if you want to understand more about our more commercially orientated operations, be sure to visit us at circusbazaarproductions.com. Both of the links will be left in the description. Before I get started today, we need to fully disclose any conflicts of interest we might have here in regard to our upcoming guest, Michael Blaze. Michael is the founder of a company called X-Wind that developed an uber-technologically advanced form of vertical axis wind turbine. The short story is that this technology has now changed hands and is being further developed by an Australian company of which CB Magazine's mother company, CB Group, has a financial interest in. So in reality, this podcast is as much about having a chat with an interesting fellow about his technology as it is about giving this technology a platform. Environmentalism is something that I think most of us are to varying degrees passionate about, and the fact that we're putting some effort and resource behind the development of wind power technology is something that we're quite proud of, and that helps in my mind to mitigate the obvious conflict. Aside from this though, Michael is an aerodynamic engineer that spent a former career working on Formula One teams. He's worked with Renault, Jordan, and British American Racing, and spent several years working directly with Alain Prost, aka The Professor, back in the 2000s. He eventually made a transition away from making F1 cars faster to transforming wind into energy by utilising the same technologically advanced methods and skill set from his former industry. The result has been a rocky but really interesting ride, and it's our hope that the technology that he got started continues to grow and plays a future role in the renewable energy market. Michael will tell us the rest. So here we go. Hi, Michael. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, First of all, why don't you just give a little bit of an explanation about who you are? Hi Shane, um, thanks thanks for the opportunity to uh, to join you this morning uh, and, and tell you a bit more about uh, myself and and, and X Wind. Um, yes, so um, I'm I'm French. Um, I've I live in the UK. I've been living here since uh, '99. I'm an engineer. Um, graduated uh, from a French school uh, back in '96. Um, I've I had always had a passion for. Uh, engineering fast cars uh, and that uh, brought me to the UK uh, back in 99 uh, where I started to work in in F1. Okay yeah see it's a real it's a real pleasure to interview someone that's got some experience in uh, Formula One engineering so what exactly Mm -hmm. did you do uh, in that field? Yes so um, I I trained as an aerodynamicist or aerospace engineer Uh, my first job was actually in in, in aerospace Um, so I was designing the car uh, back at the factory uh, using a wind tunnel or CFD uh, to make the car go, go quicker. Okay, so what, what Formula One teams were you working for? Well, being French, uh, I worked for the, the Prost team um, back in, in the 2000s. Um, I worked for Jordan, uh, British American Racing. Okay, so well. you actually did you actually know Alain Prost? Yes, yes, I worked with him for a couple of years. Yeah. 
Oh, that's very cool, man. So, I mean, in those years were the golden era of Formula One, as far as I'm concerned. See, I'm from Adelaide. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. was it was the Adelaide Formula One Grand Prix the last Grand Prix of the year? It used to be the first one. It used to okay, be the opening right. Grand Prix of the season back in the, in those days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so my whole childhood was characterized by sitting out in the backyard in Australian summer and we could hear the Formula One cars like going around the track for the whole week through practice mm-hmm. right up to the to the great race. And my father's company would sponsor it. And so we were, yeah, it was it was a fantastic thing. I, I, I love Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, so what enabled you to make the transition away from Formula One though into wind uh, energy? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I had a great passion for for speed and 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 cars. Uh, at the same time, when you spend so many hours at work, and Formula One is a very demanding industry, uh, you spend six days a week, if not seven days a week, working very hard, twelve hours a day. Uh, and I thought that um, if I was to work that hard, I should actually do it for myself, uh, which is the reason why, first of all, um, I decided to leave. Uh, an industry that I that I loved so much, um, and my first company was actually a, a supercar company. We we um, uh, designed, developed, and uh, and, and tested um, a supercar, a three seater supercar, uh, back in in the was it ninety four ninety five. Um, but when I when I did that, having my own company and managing project management uh, quality. Uh, the design of it, uh, the workforce around it, uh, made me realize that these kind of skills um, can be applied to other industries. Uh, so you've got general management, but there's also composite and aerodynamic design. And when the recession kicked in uh, back in 97, um, doing a supercar project was not the best thing to be doing. And I looked at the other industries and wind was one that really piqued my interest, um, doing something for the environment, uh, but also using my skill set uh, to the best effect, uh, coming back to aerodynamics and, and composites, which are the two main components of a, of a wind turbine. So are you a passionate advocate of renewable technologies? Yeah, you could say so. I mean, I worked nearly 10 years in that industry uh, and... I wanted to do more than than what I was doing. Um, before we go any further, I just want to clarify something. I've been doing a lot of reading on uh, Vought technology and Hort technology, but how do I pronounce mm-hmm. it? Is it acceptable for me to say Vought and Hort, or do I need to use it as the acronym and say H A W T or V A W T? No, no, you pr- you pronounce it uh, Vought or Hort. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I'll I'll edit this bit out to prevent me from seeming too stupid. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um, I I understand that initially your involvement was with Hort Designs. So just to the uneducated listener, uh, horizontal axis wind turbines are the standard turbines that you'll see out in the fields in Denmark and across different parts of the world. <laughs> but Vought Designs that you're specializing in, uh, can you just explain what the difference is between the normal stand-up windmills and Vought? Yes. So, I mean... <laughs> Horizontal axis turbines are the ones that you will see um, throughout the world. They are the ones that have been developed the most, uh, have had the most investment. Um, And in a way, they are a lot easier to design 
than a vertical axis wind turbine um, because when the wind hits the the blades, it does it in a in a straight fashion, and it's quite easy to actually calculate the wing angularity um, and the performance of the blades. With a vertical axis wind turbine, it's a lot more complex because the the blade crosses the wind uh, twice, uh, first head on, and then there's a, there's another round when it goes around at the back. Um, and the angle of attack of the blade changes um, through the revolution, um, which means that you go, you have very high angle of attack and then optimum angle of attack uh, over, over a full cycle. Um, so in a way, the optimizing a vertical axis wind turbine is a lot more difficult than an horizontal axis wind turbine. So what do you think the main reason is for Hort designs, apart from the complexity of the design, for the fact that they dominate the market? Well, as I said, they are a lot more simple to, to design, um, which means that uh, in terms of understanding how they work, um, and you can do hand calculations or semi-empirical calculations very easily uh, without having to... Uh, uh, to resort to complex CFD simulations to actually understand what is going on uh, with the wind turbine. You can adapt an horizontal axis wind turbine because you can pitch the blades. Uh, you can keep the blade in its optimum uh, position all the time. Uh, so you don't have to deal with or you have less extent of a separated flow or complex flow structures on, on a horizontal axis wind turbine than, than a vertical axis. Hmm. So why did you decide on developing a Vought technology? Well, at the time when I when I started to look at uh, vertical axis wind turbine, I was working for Vesta's Wind System, uh, which is the largest manufacturer of horizontal axis wind turbines. Um, and it was very apparent that uh, uh, the resistance of, of people of having wind turbines close to where they live um, and the tendency was to go larger and offshore, um, so l larger amount of power, uh, but away from the public eye. And the vertical axis wind turbines uh, seemed to me underdeveloped uh, when I looked at it because the performance uh, of those designs was quite significantly lower to the horizontal axis wind turbines. Um, but they did appear a lot more to the eye um, and they look like a, a sculpture, uh, which is a lot more appealing uh, to people and would be more acceptable uh, to be placed uh, closer to, uh, to the public. So I think when, when I looked at it, I thought that, the, I thought that there was a, um, a gap in the market uh, for that kind of, of turbines. Um, I didn't jump into it straight away. What I did is I looked at it and I thought, can I make a vertical axis wind turbine that performs as well as an horizontal axis? Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, a wind turbine is not just a green statement. Um, the people that buy wind turbines do it for only one purpose, and it is to generate revenue. Um, so if your performance is not as good as what is currently um, 
the benchmark, the horizontal key screen turbine, then you don't stand a chance. Um, so the first year I spent optimizing the a vertical axis wind turbine for performance um, and within a few months um, managed to get it to the same level as an horizontal axis wind turbine, which was a first for a vertical axis wind turbine. What do you think is... Many would argue that Vought technology is uncompetitive. So you're saying that you've been able to match the performance of a Vought with a, a Hort design. That's correct. I think many people rely on the fact that, yes, it is true. For the last 20, 30 years, uh, horizontal axis wind turbines have been optimized quite successfully and they've reached 48. Maybe some designs might, might reach 50% efficiency, aerodynamic efficiency. Um, and because vertical axis wind turbines didn't get the same kind of attention, and also, as I said at the very beginning of this interview, they are a lot more difficult to grasp and you can't optimize them in the same way as you do with an horizontal axis wind turbine. It's a lot more complex product. So to get the best out of it is was a lot more difficult and nobody applied the same kind of technology that, that we did here, which is basically taking the same kind of philosophy that I've used in Formula One, uh, where you basically parameterize uh, a design challenge and you throw computational resources at it until you uh, find an optimum design. So is there any domains in which you think Vought has a comparative advantage over Hort technology? Yes. So if, if you can get it to the same level of performance, then it opens up the fact that it's artistically more pleasing. Uh, but there's also a few other advantages. Um, and the two most significant ones are acoustics. Um, it rotates uh, slower than an horizontal axis wind turbine, so it generates less noise, which again is very appealing if you want to um, sight those turbines closer to the public. Um, and then the second one is that it's a lot more simple uh, design mechanically uh, because you don't you don't have any pitching mechanism. So all the all the pitch, the yo. Um, mechanism that you've got on, on on an horizontal axis wind turbine doesn't exist on a vertical axis. Uh, so it means that your mechanical stack can be a lot more simple and obviously a lot more cost efficient. So you were working for an established wind company. What made you choose to go off on your own with a new company rather than try to, to develop Vought within the company you're working with? Uh, there's, there's two elements to that. Uh, first of all, I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I love agile, small companies. Uh, and I loved what I did when I, when we had the supercar startup. Um, so going off and jumping into a startup, creating a new product from scratch, um, developing a new team to develop it was, is something that really appeals to me. And then second Vesta's, uh, is a very large company. You are talking about 20,000 people, uh, 8 billion euro revenue. And the medium wind market is booming, um, but you are talking about hundreds of millions of pounds, which, which is not very appealing to a, a giant like Vestas, whose core technology is very different 
Um, so the, the technology, the teams that they would have had to develop, the investment that they would have to make to generate a 1% improvement on their revenue, it was not going to work. So what was your vision when you first established X-Wind Power? Uh, the vision was to establish a, a small company that would operate in the same way as a large company. So what I mean is that when you look at the wind turbine industry, um, apart from the very big players, Vestas, G, all the rest uh, is very, and I don't, don't want to be pejorative, but it's a very much a glorified wood building industry. The quality is very poor. The design technology is not very good. Um, and what we wanted to do is have a company that operates like an automotive company using Six Sigma methodologies, uh, robust project management, uh, risk management, um, processes in places everywhere. Um, so we had the technology that was issued from F1 and then we have, and then we had all the processes that came from the automotive industry or large wind into a very small structure that was playing into a different marketplace, um, producing for the first time or aiming to produce a quality product. Uh, because if you want to generate revenue for your customers with a wind turbine, you need very near to hundred percent uptime and all the small wind turbines and medium wind turbines are not reaching that goal. But do you believe that uh, X-Wind Power's product would have reached that goal? Yes, we had all the processes in place to reach that goal, yes. So just just give us a walkthrough of the project as it developed. Like, Who were the initial stakeholders? So initially, it was only me and Stephen uh, Crusher uh, who came from uh, a small wind turbine uh, company. Uh, and so basically, it was me from Large Wind Automotive F1 and then Stephen uh, from small wind and where we met is that we believe we strongly believed into the in the medium wind uh, segment whereby it is it is extremely difficult to generate strong revenue and develop a company on the back of small wind the the, the wind turbines are too small people want to um, put them in in areas which are um, not ideal in terms of uh, wind resources. Um, and then you've got large wind, which is too large and people don't want to, to get close to them. So the middle ground was, was medium wind. Um, so we wanted to develop uh, an 80, 100 kilowatt wind turbine, which was large enough to generate um, uh, significant uh, revenue and, and power, uh, but not too small so that the project are can't do with a proper uh, wind resource mapping and things like that. But you you had two products mapped out, an 80 kilowatt version and a six kilowatt version? Is that correct? That's correct. So the, the, the six kilowatt is too small uh, and it was meant to be a proof of concept um, product. Um, so yes, the, 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 the six kilowatt would have fit into the, into the, uh, the small wind segment. Um, but as I said, we clearly or very quickly identified the fact that uh, we couldn't create or develop a serious company on the back of a of a small product like that. Okay, so so what's the average kilowatt output of a standard Hort technology uh, wind turbine? Well, you can 
it, you, you don't have to differentiate horizontal and, and vertical in that instance. Uh, you can, if you've got the same efficiency or capacity factor, you can generate the same amount of energy as if you're using a, an horizontal axis or a vertical axis wind turbine. Okay, but uh, there's been talk about putting a Vought technology on top of telecommunications towers. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the type of market that you'd be looking at for the eighty kilowatt edition? Yes. So the, we had two main target markets when we created the eighty kilowatt. Uh, the first one um, was uh, powering um, railways. So we had uh, a project um, approved at Network Rail to uh, to power their railway lines, and that was project number one. And then the second project was telecommunication, either using the six or the 80 kilowatts. So the the telecommunication project was the only project that would actually justify um, a volume manufacturing of the six kilowatt uh, turbine. So we we, we were not entertaining selling six kilowatts to private owners, but we we were entertaining um, powering ten thousands of masts in in India, for example, uh, used for for telecom applications. The, your company it attracted uh, quite a lot of government support and grants. Mm-hmm. Is it the uniqueness of your design that warranted this type of support? The the support was very much due to the innovative nature of the turbine and the fact that for the very first time a vertical axis wind turbine was operating at the same kind of efficiency as an horizontal axis wind turbine. From a from a technological perspective, do you think this is the greatest achievement of the project in its entirety? Just the uh, the efficiency rating? Um, the efficiency rating is is what is the tip of the iceberg of what we actually created in in, in a couple of years, so or three years. Um, that's the greatest achievement that we've made. Uh, but we had so many other things in the pipeline uh, in terms of control strategies and the way the turbine is actually manufactured. So the, the, mani- mechan- the mechanical stack was actually very different to a normal uh, vertical axis wind turbine. Um, a normal vertical axis wind turbine has bearing at the top and the bottom, uh, which is not ideal in terms of manufacturing um, and, and control of the stack. Um, we had a very com- we, have, we had a very different bearing arrangement um, that would have simplified the whole structure and reduced cost quite significantly. Uh, in the same way, the generator uh, and the brakes, uh, the braking system on the vertical axis wind turbines are, are usually also quite complex and overdimensioned uh, to co- to cope with the fact that um, we can't feather the blades like an horizontal axis wind turbine. That, that's one of the drawbacks of of a vertical axis wind turbine, but we had a um, patent pendings for um, a, a different way of uh, generating the braking, which again would have solved uh, a lot of the problems with uh, with original vertical axis wind turbine designs. So yes, the aerodynamic efficiency is what we created at the beginning. That's what we patented successfully as well internationally. Um, but we we had quite a, a few other things in the pipeline to to make it a very compelling product. Um, I've been doing a little bit of research on uh, the the testing practices around wind turbines and other technologies, and there seems to be a little bit of a divide between those that would prefer to do 
physical testing in wind tunnels and those that rely more heavily on uh, computer simulation to derive mm. results. As I understand it, you're in the second camp. I, I would not see it like that uh, because you can't test a wind turbine in a wind tunnel. Uh, the wind tunnels are too small uh, to even cope with the smallest wind turbines. As soon as you go past a five kilowatt turbine, you can't test them in a, in a wind tunnel. Uh, so what you are talking about is either you test the wing profiles in a wind, in a wind tunnel, um, and then you do CFD, and then you go to uh, field testing. Um, but there's, there's no such thing as evaluating the performance of a wind turbine in, in a wind tunnel versus CFD. Um, any respectable manufacturer uh, Vestas, GE, all the big ones will do all their development based on CFD. If you're talking about full wind turbine development, full blade development, and then they will manufacture the product and then they will verify their power curve in the field. Um, because again, when you are, our, our turbine was small enough that you would actually make a mistake and redo it. But the big guys who are making five megawatt wind turbines the just the molds to make the prototype blades cost 50 million to make so you can't make a mistake uh, but at the same time you can't test it before you actually put it in the field um, so the technologies you have to rely on are yes wind tunnel testing for the actual wing profile but that's it. After that, it's all CFD based. Is this somewhat similar to the process you'd go through in Formula One innovation? Uh, yes and no. Um, because for a Formula One car, you can actually test in the wind tunnel and you can replicate the way the car is going to behave on the track in the wind tunnel. So you can actually have both CFD and wind tunnel working hand in hand, uh, where it's different for a wind turbine because you, you only get real field data when you get when you have your product when you have your first prototype but you did do some physical testing with the six kilowatt prototype right that's correct so we did what we did is we did the whole development using cfd like any large manufacturer would do uh, and then with the six kilowatts uh, we did some uh, physical testing um, at the very start of the project and, and what were the results of that we didn't have an ideal uh, location for the test um, and the product was very much a, a proof of concept in terms of does the technology work um, and for example does the wind turbine self-start so we, ha we haven't been through the disadvantages of, of vertical axis wind turbine I, I mentioned uh, braking system and, and, and coping with the fact that the blades were cannot be um, uh, yoed out of the wind and uh, the second drawback is most of the vertical axis wind turbine don't self-start and you have to power them um, at the very beginning uh, when the wind is too, is too low or when the wind, wind picks up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true of a lot of vertical axis wind turbine designs, um, but ours are, is using a perfect uh, helical shape which meant that it could pick up uh, wind from any directions and start to rotate uh, without being uh, powered. Uh, so for example, one of the key things that we wanted to identify with the testing was um, 
does the technology actually sell stock like we predicted it would? Uh, and it did. Um, so that was one of the key uh, takeaway. One of the issues, the thing is that we've, um, with field testing, a lot of people are saying, oh, I only rely on field testing. Um, but at the same time, getting accurate data with wind, which is a very unpredictable uh, thing, uh, with wind profiles that changes from one second to another, is actually very difficult. So what you end up doing is actually averaging the performance over an amount of time. And over that amount of time, you might have a lot of variations. And we did gather some data, but not a lot. And, uh, and it was not enough to actually quantify accurately uh, the aerodynamic efficiency of the design. Um, but we did, we did get some big data that suggested that we were in the right ballpark with the CFD data. Um, the six kilowatt prototype self-destructed, correct? That's correct. So one of the advantages of being able to self-start is that you you don't need to use any power to rotate the the turbine. Uh, the problem is that if the if the turbine is not properly parked and there is a high wind coming on the turbine, then you might be in trouble. So the the turbine we operated the turbine uh, for about six months and. It was the very beginning of the company, and to actually make the turbine and generate the data, we used 10% of what other wind turbine manufacturer might have used to actually do this. Um, and some of the methods that we used at the very beginning could have been better. I um, mean, for example, the the parking of the, the the turbine was done with a simple rope attached to the rotor to prevent it from rotating. And it did the perfect job for the first six months. And then uh, at the beginning of, oh, I can't remember the exact year, was it 2013, was it? Um, the, the UK experienced a very high wind um, period for about uh, two, three days. And, and it was a, a very high, I mean, it was a 50 year type incident. Um, so the wind was extremely high and the turbine actually had a lot of uh, self-starting capabilities apparently. So it was actually strong enough to cut the rope and accelerate on its own. Um, and because it was uh, not meant to be operating, it was not plugged into the network uh, and couldn't control itself. So it basically went over its, it went into overspeed and um, uh, destroyed itself. Okay, so it was during the development of that 80 kilowatt prototype that X-Wind went into administration. Um, yes. How do you explain the reasons for the company ending up in this situation? Because I think that there is a little bit of uh, apprehension based on the fact that it might have had something to do with the design itself. Mm -hmm. um, when... When we were developing the technology, uh, because we were a small company, we were very reliant on grants uh, and investor money. Uh, the original investors were all UK-based uh, and, and very much following the UK, the UK market. Um, they were not large investors, um, but they were good enough for what we needed at the very start of the project. 
Uh, and because we were good at generating grant money, we actually didn't need that much equity investment. Um, and the challenges that we experienced uh, were political. Um, so following the general election, um, was it back in 2012 or 13? I can't remember the exact year. Um, there was a very sharp change in the green uh, um, agenda. Um, and it was very clear that uh, onshore wind was not going to be supported in the same way as it used to be. And for example, all the feed tariffs were uh, cut from one day to the next. Uh, they were divided by four or something, uh, which meant that a lot of the investors and a lot of the people involved um, in, the, in the wind market um, got cold feet. So our investors were um, cautious, that they were reluctant at putting more money into the company. But at the same time, uh, because our, yes, feeding tariff help in terms of getting traction into the market, but because our efficiency was good in the same way as the large wind turbines, we knew that we didn't need a large feeding tariff to actually make a profit and generate revenue for our customers. So it was not looking that bad for us. Uh, it would actually be good because it would kill all the small and all the product that would not be performing very well. Uh, however, um, some of the grants that we were receiving were from the government um, and one of the main uh, supporters of the project at the very beginning uh, was the Kent County Council. One of the reasons why we moved uh, the company from the Isle of Wight, where we started the company, to Kent. Uh, unfortunately, uh, after the general election uh, and because of some of the non-green agenda of some people on the board of the uh, Kent County Council, um, they redrew uh, the grant support um, again from one day to the next after we only received 10% of the uh, promised money. And that alone, uh, the changes in the political agenda after the general election, uh, but also very importantly, the redrew from that grant, then became very, very difficult to explain for us. Um, every time we had an investor interested, uh, loved the technology, loved the company, loved what we did. Uh, however, when it came to explain how um, a government body that was meant to be putting in a million pounds into the company redrew its funding after only giving 10% of it, even though we had a 300-page report that explained exactly why that happened, it's only it, you only need a very small amount of uncertainty to lose uh, interest from investors and we within the amount of time we had which was only a few months to turn around the situation we just couldn't do it, it with that baggage did you try looking for investors abroad we did but again we the window was so small we had a few months to overturn the situation um, and as I said, we had a, a good investor base in the UK with the ones that invested in the first round. Um, but the UK investor market uh, is very, very uh, reluctant in terms of risk. 
uh, and the risk profile went up very quickly with us. Um, and we couldn't generate the amount of, of uh, equity investment we needed from one day to the next very quickly. It just, just wouldn't happen. So in, in summary, at that point when the company went into administration, what what level had you achieved? I mean, would have you said you'd verified both designs or half verified one design or? Well, we when the six kilowatts was prototype was destroyed, we decided that we didn't want to invest any more money in, in a six kilowatt design. Um, because yes, we could make more, uh, generate more data, trying to verify the efficiency a little bit more. Um, but in the same way as you've got people saying, or you haven't tested, you only have tested in CFD, you haven't done a full verification in the field. Straight away, the next hurdle becomes, or oh, you've only verified that six kilowatts, how you, how are you sure it's gonna actually work at 80 kilowatts? And the product we wanted to work was the 80 kilowatt. It was the one that would generate revenue for the company and would be a hit in the market. So it was the one to actually devote all the attention, all the money to, so straight away, when the when the six kilowatt design was destroyed, we jumped onto the eighty kilowatt, uh, and we started to the aerodynamics were slightly different. So we updated the aerodynamics for the eighty kilowatt, and we started to manufacture the first uh, two prototypes, which were meant to be installed uh, on the network rail uh, site, which was going to be our first customer. And uh, so had the. So had there not been an election and government grants had have continued and the investor base had have been maintained, what would have been your next steps? So when, when the company closed its door, we had uh, two 80 kilowatts, uh, which were 50% uh, there. Uh, and we were only, I don't know, six months, another six months and we, we would have had the first prototype up and running. Uh, so the next stage would have been to read the power curve um, so that would have then uh, enabled us to uh, start selling. As soon as we had a portfolio of uh, potential customers, more than 10 people that were actually waiting for power curves before placing a firm order. Um, so that, that would have been enough to uh, secure those orders. So, I mean, clearly, go going back a few questions, I mean, you're clearly passionate about the fact that you employed Six Sigma design principles uh, and the use of um, computer design technology. Um, can you just elaborate on why you're so passionate about this in relationship to the wind industry? Um, as I mentioned, if you want to have um, a competitive turbine, yes, you need to have aerodynamic efficiency, uh, then you need to have a good mechanical stack, so it's reliable um, and it's uh, efficient again as well when you transform the kinetic energy down to electric uh, um, ele energy. Um, but you you need to have an uptime which is above 98%, uh, and you are not talking about a few years. It's not a car that needs to operate well uh, between service intervals. Uh, it's a design that needs to sustain wind, uh, cold, uh, rain, uh, sand in some instances for 20, 25 years. Uh, and people don't actually appreciate the fact that, that it's a very, very significant challenge. And when I said that uh, the small and medium wind energy uh, segment was very much like a, a boat building industry, there's a lot of people that gen that 
make a wind turbine out of their shed, test it for a few years, and yes, it works all right. Uh, but then when you put it into a field and it has to stay there for 20 years, um, it is a very significant challenge to do it well. And the only way to do that is the same way as when you design a plane. You cannot have it crash. It cannot have any problems when it flies. Um, so we use the same kind of technology that you are using aeronautics and automotive. Um, so that's, we were aiming for a service interval. So people going to the wind turbine every five years. Uh, at the moment, um, in medium wind, it's one year, um, but it's not uncommon to hear about uh, monthly visits. So to conclude, what's, what's your take on the future of renewable energy and in particular wind energy? Uh, well, I think unless somebody <laughs> picks up what we did uh, and make it a success, um, the horizontal wind turbines are still getting uh, the best part of of the market. And um, that trend of getting larger, bigger, uh, but further away from uh, the population is probably going to carry on. So offshore wind um, is probably going to carry on developing further uh, with large scale uh, horizontal axis wind turbines. And so you don't believe that uh, small to medium wind is uh, uh, hugely profitable in the future with regard to sort of domestic installations or on-land installations? I don't believe in domestic uh, applications. And the reason is that uh, you are too close to buildings. Uh, one one of the things that uh, I very much aligned with uh, Stephen when we created X-Wind is that we didn't want to create another urban uh, wind uh, company. A lot of people came to us and said, oh, yes, yes, I love your design. Can I put it on the roof of this building or put it there? Um, and we said, no, that's not what we are about. If you want a wind turbine to work, it needs to be in clean wind in a location that has good wind resource. Uh, it doesn't work in the city. It doesn't work in close proximity with, with buildings. Um, and if you do that, then you're going to end up with customers that are not happy with the product. Uh, and that's what happened with um, Quiet Revolution. Quiet Revolution is a similar design to what we had. Um, uh, they, they developed their technology a few years before us. It was a three-bladed vertical axis wind turbine design. Um, it had a few drawbacks. It has some weaknesses, um, but they tried to generate revenue very quickly. And they did a few um, green statement installations in location that meant that they didn't have good green resource. Um, so they ended up with customers or with turbines that didn't spin and that were stationary for most of the time and that didn't do any good publicity to their company and to the vertical axis wind turbines in, in general. This is, this is why you were interested in uh, uh, powering uh, railway lines. So they could be in sort of semi like rural non-domestic areas. Yes. And we were going to use the 80 kilowatt, which is um, significantly higher above the ground than what a six kilowatt would be. And so just, just out of curiosity to power like a, a basic railway line, how far do these wind turbines need to be as far as intervals? Uh, we were looking at a five meter interval. F five meter interval. Yeah. 
but we, you wouldn't have them all the way along. You would have them in clusters of five turbines. Um, you and to power, we did the calculations, and it's a long time ago now. But uh, to power to to generate, I think it was seventy percent of their energy requirement. We only needed to install turbines along ten percent of the railway. You don't need to cover the whole railway in turbines to actually generate a significant amount of energy. All right, Michael. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, well, I'd like to wish you the best of luck in the future. And thank you, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, good luck with everything. Great. Thanks, Jane, for the opportunity to, to speak with you. 